we continue our summer interview series as we talk to Dr. Tim Stratton, author of Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana, this is uh, the Bellator Christie Podcast and we bring to you the word of the Lord. Today's verse comes from Psalm 130, verse 5, which says, I wait for the Lord, I wait and put my hope in His Word. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, hello and welcome aboard, family. Uh, We just thank you for the engagement with the Bellator Christi website and emails. Uh, We've been getting some uh, email correspondence and uh, there there have been some questions that we've been getting um, and we will be answering those in full soon uh soon as we're done with the uh with our guests um with our uh summer series that we've been doing uh but uh, uh hang in there and just keep keep getting back to us we've been uh we've been answering them uh with as short an answer as we can because we want to give uh give a full answer um on the on the podcast so uh let's go ahead and op- uh, welcome on uh, the founder of bellator christy brian chilton hello brian Hey, Curtis, hope you're doing well. <laughs> yeah, we're doing good. I heard that you guys got uh, answered prayer with some beneficial rains this past week. Just, Yeah, just a, just a good good dousing, slow rain. Yeah, it's been nice. Uh, smoke is still terrible in the air right uh-huh. now with the forest fires all around. But, um, yeah, we'll just we'll take the rain when we get it. That's for sure. Well, I know we have a guest with us. We've been chomping at the bit to get him on, to get him back on the Bellator Christie podcast. I'm just going to read his bio here. We have with us Dr. We can now say doctor since the last time he was on the podcast. He's officially called doctor now. Dr. Tim Stratton, uh, he earned his Ph.D. at Northwest University. Uh, he's a professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. As a former youth pastor, he is devoted to answering questions he first encountered from inquisitive teens in his church. Stratton is the founder of FreethinkingMinistries.com, a web-based apologetics ministry providing supplementary materials to this edition, what we're going to talk about, of Mere Molinism. Uh, Stratton speaks to on church and college campuses around the country and offers regular videos on Free Thinking Ministries' YouTube channel. And I want to tell you, we're going to talk about his book today entitled Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism. And as I'm looking at the back cover here, he has two heavy hitters endorsing this book. Uh, one, Dr. Mike Lacona, and the other, the the uh, the all star of Molinism, that's Dr. William Lane Craig. So I feel like I need to get his autograph. Uh, let's 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 welcome on the podcast, Dr. Tim Stratton. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for having me 
back on. Uh, it's good to see see you guys again on on video and talk with you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, well, welcome aboard. That's good. So I gotta say, I, I purchased a copy of your book, Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, and man, this thing is a monster book. I mean, this is when I first got it and opened it up, I was like, man, this is huge. But it's it's as huge as the book is on the exterior. It's even bigger on the inside because you cover some powerful, powerful topics. So let's just jump right into this. First and foremost, what is the aim of your book, and who is your intended audience? Well, first of all, thanks for getting a copy of my book. Uh, that, that means a lot to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, yeah, so when I was writing the book, it was actually my doctoral dissertation, and it's slightly adapted what, what you have. I, I deleted a few things and added a few things here and there. But, but basically, it's my dissertation. And so when writing uh, Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism, uh, my, my goals were really threefold. So first and foremost, uh, the most important thing to me is I had to convince my supervisor and my doctoral committee, who were all theologians at a Reformed university, that oh. Molinism, <laughs> I had to convince them that Molinism oh, was man. compatible with Reformed theology. So, so that is to say, uh, I wanted to pass and earn a PhD <laughs> in theology. And so I did exactly what they asked of me. And it was tough. I mean, I got to tell you. Uh, the research proposal was harder than my master's thesis um, because at first, they, you know, I thought I was going to have to change my uh, my research proposal and my the direction I was going to go. But I finally convinced them to give me a shot. Um, all right, so that was my first uh, goal was to pass. <laughs> um, uh, second, I really desired to provide a resource on Molinism that would be understandable. Uh, to the layman, um, you know, really the layperson who takes theology seriously was kind of my uh, my my goal there to hit. I wanted to be able to have a, an impact on the church at large. So not just not just the academics, even though I was writing it in an academic uh, setting. Um, so, but but my really kind of my target was just the 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 person in the church who takes theology seriously. And finally, as a theologian who makes no claims to be a professional philosopher, <laughs> um, but who does take philosophy quite seriously, I, I like to call myself a philosophically inclined theologian, um, I, I hope to write a theology book with philosophical elements that would serve as a practical and even a pastoral resource. So my intent was to, uh, to reconcile theological issues within the church and also demonstrate the practical application of Molinism when applied to theological issues and apologetics while supporting each of those theological points with philosophical arguments, I guess. So, um, you know, my, my friend Kyle Barrington, I think he said it well, he, he sees my book as uh, primar primarily theological with some philosophical elements. And uh, he correctly noted that it, it shouldn't be confused with a philosophy book, but rather a book on theology and, uh, you know, practical theology, which appeals to uh, philosophical arguments to support my theological case. So that's, that's a lot of, <laughs> a lot to think about there. I guess I'll say this, the bot, here's the bottom line. The target audience of my book was laymen 
who take theology seriously, but this target was standing behind Reformed PhD theologians at a Reformed university. So I had to shoot through them to hit my target. And I think that kind of makes for a rather unique book. I don't know. Absolutely. And I've got to say to you that that I think that there is a dire need for philosophical theology in today's time because it seems like I, I've, I've found that, you know, I've heard some philosophers tell some theologians, hey, why don't you, you know, dig into some more philosophy or even ask questions of philosophers? And it seems like the two should really be blended a lot more than it has in times past. Yeah, I agree. We, we really need to help. Uh, I mean, I, I like to say it this way. Christians should be the most logical thinkers on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sadly, that's not been the case for quite a while. And so, you know, I, I mean, sometimes I get some pushback saying, hey, wh- why are you uh, aiming? Why are you trying to hit um, the, the church at large and, instead of just going after uh, the academics. And I, I feel like, you know, our, our world is in such a, a sorry state of affairs right now um, that we don't have time to hit a, you know, a handful of academics and hopes and, and hope that it trickles down in 50 or 75 years. We, we need mm-hmm. to go after the, really the church right now. The church is in trouble. If the church was strong, our culture would be be much better <laughs> and not be fine uh, when the church is strong uh our culture is strong but our church is weak and our culture is in shambles right now and when we start to think i mean my passion is to help people think correctly about god and for people to mm-hmm. see god for who he really is i spend so much time in my book talking about how god is a maximally great being and talking about what that means and i focus on the big three that god is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. He's perfectly powerful, perfectly intelligent, and perfectly loving. And when when one, you know, a lot of views of God's sovereignty, uh, they might not mean to, but they wind up degrading one of those critical aspects. And when that happens, you start to have a low view of God, as A.W. Tozer put it. And really when that happens, you're saying God's not a maximally great being, and what do you know? Uh, that's the definition of God, and so what you're saying is God doesn't exist. You know, and that's at least what's uh, heard by the culture. And so, uh, really, I think Molinism is uh, really the only view of God's sovereignty that consistently and logically allows uh, God to keep all of His omni attributes, if that makes sense. So, anyway, Absolutely. I really spend a lot of time focused on that. Powerful stuff. That's good. So, T- Tim, you've been on the podcast before talking about mere Molinism, and uh, for those who haven't heard that podcast, I'd encourage them to go back and, and, and really catch up on what he talks about. Great podcast. So, for those who may not have caught the previous podcast, um, what is mere Molinism? What do you mean by that? Well, in a nutshell, uh, mere Molinism is a conjunction of an affirmation that humans possess at least limited libertarian freedom and that God possesses middle knowledge. So let me define what I mean by both libertarian freedom and divine middle knowledge. Uh, I'll start with libertarian freedom. Um, uh, Usually I'll say it in one of two ways. I'll say uh, libertarian freedom refers to an agent's choice, action, evaluation, or judgment that is not causally determined by something or someone else. 
Now, this can also be stated in the following manner. I could say libertarian freedom is the ability to choose such that antecedent or prior conditions are insufficient. They're not sufficient to causally determine one's choice. So really, with these manners of explaining libertarian freedom like this, uh, these definitions of libertarian freedom hold whether or not there are alternative possibilities. Um, as long as you're not causally determined by something or someone else when you choose or act or judge or evaluate, um, as long as you are the source and not causally, causally determined by something or someone else, then you possess libertarian freedom, even if for some weird reason you can't choose otherwise. But here's another way um, that I define libertarian freedom, and I actually defend this view as well, um, and, and that's the opportunity to exercise an ability to choose among a range of options, each of which is compatible with one's nature in a circumstance where the antecedent previous conditions are insufficient to causally determine or necessitate the agent's choice. So really what that that's like a nice way of saying the, you know, the ability to do otherwise, other you know, it's often commonly referred to as the PAP, the PAP, the principle of alternative possibilities, or just simply alternative possibilities. Basically saying if you choose one way, you could have chosen another way. Mm. Now, now with that said, I like to say that the first definition I gave you is necessary for libertarian freedom. You've always got to be the source. If something if something else is the source of your judgments or your evaluations or your thoughts, or your actions, or how you guide your thinking, if something or someone else is causally determining that, then that's the source, not you. So I like to say that number one, uh, the first definition is necessary for liber libertarian freedom. You've got to be the source. You cannot be causally determined by something or someone else. But uh, suppose I can't show that directly, but I can show that you've got an ability to think otherwise or to do otherwise or whatever. Um, if that's, you know, that's uh, basically uh, the second definition I gave that you've got the opportunity to exercise an ability to choose between or among a range of alternative options that are each compatible with your nature at that moment in that scenario. Um, that's, that's an ability to do otherwise. Um, if I can show that, then that's sufficient. So the first definition is necessary. The second definition is sufficient. So that's libertarian freedom. Uh, that, so that's one of the critical or, or key ingredients that you need for mere Molinism to be true. You also need middle knowledge. So what is middle knowledge? I like the way Kirk McGregor uh, defines middle knowledge. He's uh, known as probably one of the world's leading uh, Molinist scholars. I lean on him quite a lot, and I'm constantly uh, sending him emails, um, uh, verifying things with them. And in fact, he wrote the foreword to my book. But uh, Kirk uh, says, he defines middle knowledge like this. He says, middle knowledge is God's knowledge of all things that would happen in every possible set of circumstances, both things that are determined to occur by those circumstances and things that are not determined to occur by those circumstances. So um, I like to distinguish, if it's helpful, uh, between um, could, would, and will. So if God possesses middle knowledge, then he not only knows all that he could create in his omnipotent static state of aseity logically prior to creation. And, you know, if you're thinking about the Kalam cosmological argument and you get back to mm -hmm. 
the existence of God logically before creation in the beginning of the universe, right? In that state, if God's omnipotent, he's got options. And so he knows everything that he could create, right? An omniscient and omnipotent God knows everything he could do, even the things he never does. And this is logically prior to creation. So then he also knows all that would happen based on everything he could do. So think about that. An omniscient and omnipotent God knows everything that he could do. And he also knows everything that would happen based upon everything he could do. Now, middle knowledge brings the would. Middle knowledge is what would happen if. So it's kind of like uh, the knowledge the ghost of Christmas future had or the kind of knowledge that Doctor Strange had in the movie Avengers Infinity War a couple years there ago. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's, it's a great analogy. Now, I've got a, a good short video explaining how Doctor Strange can help us understand God and middle knowledge on the Free Thinking Ministries YouTube channel. So I, I encourage people to check that out if they'd like to look into that further. I think I think it, it provides a fantastic illustration. And Brian, you're uh, going to school at Bi Biola now to get a master's degree in philosophy, right? That's correct. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, guess what? The guy that developed Dr. Strange's character, Scott Derrickson, he was a former student in the same program. Are you serious? Yeah. I did yeah, not know so, that. Yeah, so he he learned from Dr. Uh, Dr. Craig and Dr. Moreland and everybody else there. And you think, I mean, you go watch that movie. He gave <laughs> Dr. Strange the power of middle knowledge, uh, at least modified middle knowledge. And, yeah, so watch my video to, to find out. But, yeah, you'll, you've got some good... Uh, you might have a good connection there. So, so in middle knowledge, God would have known that we would have chosen all three chosen black shirts as we're wearing tonight for this podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe something determined that. I don't. I mean, um, I, I'm open to some things being determined. In fact, I'm open to probably most things being uh, causally determined. What I argue for is that sometimes there's got to be libertarian freedom. And, and that really comes into play when we're talking about rational uh, or rationality or, um, and, and specific kinds of rationality. You know, I can say my dog is rational in a sense, but there's a deeper level of rationality, uh, the, the ability to um, rationally infer better beliefs over false beliefs, um, and the ability to to rationally affirm claims of knowledge, and I'll talk about that more later. But but when we get it, also when it, we talk about morality, um, uh, and uh, and being responsible in a desert sense, uh, deserving praise or blame. In these instances, uh, we need to have uh, libertarian freedom, and and I'll, I'll I'll share those arguments with you as we keep talking. Absolutely. C Curtis, I don't want to hog all the time. Uh, do you have any questions? Well, I, I just, I guess the, 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 when you're talking about he could and then would, um, is that, is that something that you have to be very, uh, precise and distinct on to be able to show that attribute or, or is that something that, that really kind of comes into when you're dealing with technical people <laughs> um it's uh i think i find it helpful um even mm -hmm. for the average person you know uh when you start you know a lot of times i'll ask 
you know, my, my colleague, uh, Braxton Hunter at Trinity, uh, college of the Bible and theological seminaries, my boss, he, uh, he likes to say, um, when he talks to, uh, the old lady at the church, you know, he'll just ask a few questions and, uh, say things like, well, do you think that God makes you think and, and act the w- exactly the way you think or act? Yeah. And they'll yeah. say, oh, of course not. You know, oh, very yeah. few people will say that. Right. Um, right. You know, uh, I mean, we're just talking about the average churchgoer. Uh, very few will say that God, uh, my, that I'm mind controlled by God, right? <laughs> or right, and that right. when I sin, well, God made me sin. I mean, when, right. if you ask the average person at the church, like when you sin, did God cause you to do that? They'll say, of course not. That was on me. Right, so it's only once you study Calvinism for a while that you start saying stuff like that. But, um, <laughs> which I used to affirm, by the way, that used to be my position. Um, but, and I was a cage stage Calvinist, by the way. I'd, I'd fight people on this. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So, so, so you were a former uh, James White? Oh man, I was. I'm yeah. I, some people might have thought I was more aggressive, but oh, wow. imagine that. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't on the internet back then, so <laughs> I'm thankful that nobody knew me back then. Uh, I mean, I've got a, a blog article on freethinkingministries.com called Molinism Saves Marriages. And in my early marriage, it, this was such a source of contention. I mean, James White once said that I was, I, you know, since I was saying I was a former Calvinist, James White actually on his show said, you were not really a, a Calvinist. You're not a former Seriously? Calvinist. You were never a Calvinist. Yeah, and and I'm like, well, tell that to my wife. Uh, we fought. We fought. We almost. I mean, it's like we almost got divorced over this issue. I, oh, wow. I, the only time I slept on the couch the entire night was because we were fighting. She was she was raised Arminian, and I was a hardcore Calvinist, and so we were fighting. But anyway, I kind of lost track of where I was going there. Molinism uh, says marriages. <laughs> yeah, before that, where was the what was I talking about? Oh, uh, the James. To say, to yeah. <laughs> Had you were a stage cage. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I said you. You weren't determined to 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 know what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you were talking about being a Calvinist previously. Yeah. No, I had a point even before then, and I got sidetracked, and now I don't know where I'm at. Oh, so, that's no problem. <laughs> that's that's a live record. Yeah, that's what happens. That's how it is. <laughs> What biblical support? Now, you, and you you go through and provide biblical support for for the Molinist perspective. And uh, we, we, earlier we had Zach Breitenbach, um, who who wrote a book uh, previously, oh, yeah. and, and I and, just read his book. Yeah, in his book, he off, also offers biblical support, and and it seems like there's the more we study Scripture, the more support that's found. So, what biblical support did you find that supports the Molinist perspective? Yeah, okay, well, let's start with uh, God's uh, counterfactual knowledge. So again, um, if Molinism is going to be supported biblically, and I've already told you what mere Molinism entails, we've got to have biblical support for both uh, God's middle knowledge and uh, for human libertarian freedom, at least sometimes. So uh, let's start with God's counter or with with God's middle knowledge, but to do that, we're going to start with God's counterfactual knowledge, which if God never gains, right? If He never gains this knowledge, if He's truly omniscient in that static state of aseity that the Kalam gives you, if He is 
truly omniscient in that state, then he will never gain knowledge. Um, so if that's the case, and he's got counterfactual knowledge, if the Bible makes it clear that he's got counterfactual knowledge, and then you combine that with he never gains knowledge, then he possesses middle knowledge. Now, you could even deny that and give him modified middle knowledge if you wanted to give him something like Dr. Strange. But let's table that and just talk about what God knows um, and then see, you know, see if we are comfortable saying that God knows that logically prior to his creative decree. So uh, I mentioned a counterfactual proposition. Uh, a counterfactual proposition uh, is a conditional sentence stating what would have been true under different circumstances. So say uh, one that I've given recently is if Peter would have had more faith, he would have continued walking on the water, right? He wouldn't have sunk. <laughs> um, or another one, if Tim Stratton didn't have a receding hairline, he would not shave his head, right? I don't even know the answer to that. I think about it every once in a while. I'm like, what would I do if I had a, if I didn't have a receding hairline? Uh, because you I really do. Enjoy... What's that? <laughs> You'd have a mullet. I, I wonder because I probably would. I don't know. It, it would either be, I don't know. I'd either have a mullet or I'd continue or I'd shave my head because I do really enjoy shaving my head. Um, I kind of like how it looks and it's easy to take care of. Um, but then I wonder, man, if I, could grow my hair i would really like to have a mullet and so i just don't know but and it seems to me even if i don't know that an omniscient god would know or does know what i would do if a different circumstance was reality um, if i did not have a receding hairline so there's things about me there's counterfactual propositions about me that i don't even know but i think god still knows them because he's omniscient absolutely so, um, so anyway, with God, let's talk about uh, biblical data um, about these counterfactual propositions. Probably the most popular cited biblical passage is found in 1 Samuel 23, uh, verses 6 through 14. And here, in a nutshell, uh, God lets David know a truth to a counterfactual proposition, namely that if he were to stay at Kaliah, then Saul would pursue him. And that if Saul were to pursue him, then the men of Kaliah would give him over to Saul. And God provides David with certain what would happen if knowledge. And the if never happened, so the would never actually happened either. So here, God doesn't just know the future. God knows uh, what would happen in alternative possible futures. Right. So, of course, he knows what would happen in the future if he knows what would happen in alternative possible futures. Um, and and here, the reason why all that stuff never happened is because David got the heck out of Dodge. And uh, so the men of Kaliah never gave him over to Saul. Um, uh, Jeremiah 38, 17 and 18 also provides support for God's counterfactual knowledge. Uh, this this passage makes it clear that God knows what would happen no matter what course of action Zedekiah would choose to take. And on top of that, uh, the test of a true prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18.22, is the fulfillment of his predictions. Right? You think about that. That's the test of a true prophet. Mm -hmm. But some predictions given by biblical prophets 
are never fulfilled because the people uh, who these prophecies were delivered responded by cha changing their lives. I mean, kind of like how David did too. David changed what he was going to do, and so that never happened. Well, these people do the same thing when responding to prophets, right? We see this in Isaiah 38, 1 through 5, Amos 7, 1 through 6, Jonah 3, 1 through 10. So, uh, therefore, follows that the people who chose, well, the, the people who chose to change their lives avoided the consequences of what would have happened if they had not changed direction. And so this is uh, surprisingly similar to Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Future, if, ever, uh, if you want another uh, illustration there. I like uh, that. I never sense. never thought about that. That's a good illustration. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, Dr. Craig gives this, and, uh, you know, so... It's, it's really a good illustration or analogy to help people start. I mean, if people can watch um, that, that story with Scrooge and, and the ghost of Christmas future and think, oh, yeah, uh, I can make sense of this, then you should have no problem uh, with God possessing uh, counterfactual uh, knowledge here or even middle knowledge. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the ghost of Christmas future shows Scrooge what would happen if he doesn't change his life? Scrooge says, I don't want that to happen. So he changes his life and that possible future never happens. Mm. Um, but the ghost of Christmas future seems to know it with certainty. Well, the Bible gives examples of that, uh, that, that God has that kind of knowledge. And the Old Testament really is rife with examples right. of what an omniscient God knows. And in fact, on top of that, uh, the test of, a, of the one true God in Isaiah, I think, 48 um, somewhere in the 40s. And the test of the one true God is that he knows the future with certainty, mm. right? So, uh, you know, God knows not just what will happen in the future, but he also knows what would have happened in other possible futures or possible worlds that God had the power to actualize or not. So God is a maximally great being. That means he's maximally knowledgeable that means he's omniscient um and so if that's the case um and he never gains knowledge uh because gaining knowledge would mean that god formerly never had didn't it. possess yeah. knowledge and so he wouldn't always be a maximally great being well if that's the case then he's got to have middle knowledge now so really you can make a strong case with the old testament but the new testament also records jesus making many statements implying that he's got counterfactual knowledge and so uh you know think about these uh if and would statements that jesus makes um here we got in let's start with uh, john 15 uh 22 and 24 jesus says if i had not come and spoken to them they would not have sin if i had not done among them the works that no one else did they would not have sin so is that true well, if so, then Jesus possesses counterfactual knowledge. In John 18, 36, uh, Jesus offered the following counterfactual knowledge claim. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over the, to the Jews. Okay, is that true or not? Well, if it's true, then Jesus possesses counterfactual knowledge. In Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says, woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one mm -hmm. to not have been born. Okay, is that true? If so, counterfactual knowledge. So there's there's many passages in Scripture 
that affirm that God has counterfactual knowledge. But, as I said earlier, the question is, does he possess middle knowledge? And that question hinges upon when God logically possesses counterfactual knowledge. So, does God have this knowledge before slash uh, logically prior to his creative decree? Or does God create the world and then gain knowledge of it? Right? If God owns this counterfactual knowledge eternally without beginning and causally before his creative decree in which he actualized the world, then God possesses middle knowledge. So that is to say, if God is eternally omniscient, then God possesses middle knowledge. So mm-hmm. that's biblical support for middle knowledge, the first aspect of mere Molinism. Um, next, I'll give biblical support for libertarian freedom. But do you guys have anything you want to say before I do that? Uh, I was just going to say, or I guess add in on that, because Jesus even said, uh, if the works were done um, in uh, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented and turned. So that gives that gives evidence right there. Yeah. Now, I will say that that's a controversial uh, <laughs> passage that's even debated between Molinists. You just yeah. mentioned... Yeah, Zach uh, Breitenbach Zach mentioned that. Uh, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I just read his book, and he's like, no, that, that does imply... This is to be taken as middle knowledge. Dr. Craig... On the other hand, says no. This is a, a, a façon de parler, a, a manner of speaking. Um, so, I could go either way on that. Um, I, I do think there's some. Uh, I, I like what Zach is saying in his book. I recommend his book. So, I haven't made a, a, a commitment yet, one way or another, on that passage. But I can mm-hmm. see the arguments made by both sides. I'll say this: I, mm-hmm. uh, Zach and I have talked, and we're trying to set up a time to um, talk in person. So maybe he'll awesome. convince me on that one. Um, so, yeah, I'll just make, you know, I'm just putting a little flag there saying uh, that that's debated even among Molinists uh, and Molinist scholars there. But uh, Zach could be right. Um, so let's look at uh, biblical passages for libertarian freedom, which is really uh, what what I spend most of my time uh, focusing on is libertarian freedom. Um, However, I will say I see the significant um, advantage, uh, apologetic advantage to um, middle knowledge. Uh, If if God has middle knowledge, uh, game over, we can answer the problem of evil, we can answer the problem of divine hiddenness, um, and just about everything else. Um, But we'll get back to that later. Uh, let me talk about biblical passages for libertarian freedom. So uh, consider a couple things that the Apostle Paul says. Now, if there's any confusion, the Apostle Paul is the same guy who wrote Romans 9. Uh, so, but let's yeah. look, right, which is often trotted out as the evidence that we don't have uh, libertarian free will, right, that God causally determines everything. Well, I think that's a, a crazy, unjustified leap, Um and a misinterpretation of Romans 9, but let's look at what else Paul wrote. In 1 Corinthians 10, um, a passage of scripture that I spilled much ink on in my book, I argue that the 13th verse of the 10th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church clearly demonstrates libertarian freedom and an opportunity to exercise an ability to do otherwise. So let me read this passage. Paul says, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, 
Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, in that one passage, I contend that there's two aspects of libertarian freedom. Now, uh, to see why the context here has, has to do with libertarian freedom, and I discuss this in my book. Here's a syllogism I give in my book. I'll give it to you here. Uh, premise one, if Christians possess the opportunity to exercise their ability to choose among a range of alternative options, each compatible with their regenerated nature at the given or at a given moment, then Christians possess libertarian freedom. Two, at the moment of temptation, Christians possess the opportunity to exercise their ability to choose between giving in to temptation or to take the way of escape God promises to provide in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Three, therefore, Christians possess libertarian freedom. So I think that's one of the most powerful passages in Scripture. I think it's implied uh, in numerous places, but it's very clear here that um, at least Christians have an ability to sin or take the way of escape, the ability to fall into temptation um, or the op so, so given an opportunity here, they have the opportunity to fall or to take the way of escape. Mm -hmm. And so if you fall, you failed to seize the opportunity to escape. It, you had the ability to do it and you failed to do it. So don't say the devil made me do it. Mm. And you better not say God made me do it that many Calvinists say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so take responsibility. Take responsibility. You did it. You were responsible. You could have done otherwise. You could have taken the way of escape, but you chose to sin. So that's on you. What were you going to say? Yeah, I, I was just—I um, I just thought that was a very powerful statement because I have actually heard Calvinists make that claim that uh, if you hold strict determinism, then then ultimately you you can blame God for your own misgivings, yep. which I think is horrid. That's right. It is horrid. Hor it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I mean, I mean, like, like, I mean, what else does Paul say in that passage? He said, he yeah. says. Um, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. That is such a low view of God right there. To say that God is a the author of evil mm -hmm. is is about the lowest view of God one can possess. Yeah. And and you know, and I've I've made the case. I'm not saying that Calvinists are intentionally worshiping an idol. But when you see that your view logically leads to a low view of God. Well, what is that? It's idolatry. Um, inadvertent. It's it's. They're not. Look, I'm not. I'm not saying they're guilty of idolatry, but but you're in danger of it, right? So well, flee yeah, yeah. from that. Flee from idolatry. I'll tell you this, and I'll, I say the same thing. Theist, right? They have a low view of God's knowledge. Right. All right. Well, that's a low view of God. Flee from idolatry. God is a maximally great being. He's perfect in any way. We can get there philosophically right. through the ontological argument and many other arguments that uh, that 
you can use as a cumulative case, but the ontological argument just gives it to you. You can get there biblically. And in my book, I give so many passages of scripture that would support the idea that God is a maximally great being. Um, so uh, we, we've got to flee from these ideas that even tacitly or implicitly show that God is um, not a maximally great being. It's just following following the, the, the logical system of the any particular worldview to its ends. And let me just say real quickly, and we need to move on because we've got a bunch of historical stuff we want to talk about before I give Curtis. I heard, and this is going to make a few disgruntled, but that's okay. We've done it before in the past. John MacArthur, who is a strong Calvinist, I heard him one time spend 45 minutes trying to explain uh, how uh, freedom and or, or how God could choose to condemn individuals. He spent 45 minutes, and then his conclusion, he says, well, you're not going to understand it anyhow, so why we didn't even talk about it. And I thought, well, you just spent oh. 45 minutes trying to describe <laughs> election, and then you're going to toss it off saying, well, we can't, underst- we can't understand it yeah. in yeah, the I end anyhow. So, uh, Curtis, you have any so, quick follow-up questions there for you? No, we we can keep rolling. That's for sure. Now I, I will just say, and I can, for the sake of time, I can skip this. But First Corinthians ten fifteen, there where Paul says, "Judge for yourselves what I say." I'll just quickly say, look, if God is causally determining how you judge, and causally determines you to judge incorrectly, um, then you can't judge for yourself. Yeah, what Paul says. Um, if how I guide my thinking is ultimately caused and determined and under the control of something or someone else, then I do not have the control condition required for rational or even moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, so First Corinthians ten thirteen gives it to you. <laughs> uh, Fourteen tells you to flee from a low view of God, mm-hmm. to flee from idolatry, and then fifteen again he hits you again with, uh, judge for yourselves what I say, which is impossible if exhaustive divide, if exhaustive divine determinism. Is true that God causally determines everything. Absolutely. Anyway, I'll I, I could go off and give you a sermon on that, but I'll let, I'll let you keep going. Let, let, let's jump into the historical side because I was actually really surprised how much in how much depth uh, you discuss the historical belief systems of, of people from uh, you know pre pre uh, reformational periods to reformational periods to even into to some more uh, current thinkers. So let's let's first of all uh, ask uh, just some of the heaviest hitters, like say maybe two or three of the heaviest hitters. Um, who are some of the more influential theologians of the pre-Reformational period that you cover, and how do they re- relate to the Molinist perspective? Yeah, well, just really quickly, I have to say that this this historical survey that I did, um, it, it's not what excites me, uh, <laughs> but I saw that this was important to so many people. And, but is it and, strange and that I, it excited me? I, I thought it was really good. <laughs> well, my dad, that was his favorite part. Uh, of the book um and yeah there's some you know people are wired differently um uh but you know it's uh it really kind of you know it would put me to sleep as i was working on this stuff what excites me is is uh perfect being theology and metaphysics and philosophy i mean that that gets me out of bed in the morning but the historical survey would literally put me to sleep while i was working on it but i but i saw how important it was and i did spend uh Close, close, probably half the book, especially if you consider the biblical chapter as history, which I do. Yeah, uh, it absolutely. Is half the book. And so, uh, 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, you asked about the pre-Reformation uh, historical theologians, and I, I guess I'd say uh, Augustine and Aquinas are the most influential. Um, now, I, I did not really cover their views on God's knowledge, but rather uh, focused on their views of uh, human freedom. And you know, they weren't using the words uh, libertarian freedom back then, but we can uh, really based on what they're saying here, kind of figure it out when they're talking about libertarian freedom or not. Um, but I think Augustine uh, started his philosophical career as a full-fledged libertarian. Absolutely. But then moved, and I don't think he ever fully left it, right? But he did move to what I would describe as a limited libertarian freedom kind of guy. I, I agree with you. I don't, you know, he's often labeled as a Calvinist before Calvin, but I, you know, I, I still think even in later Augustinian writings, you still have that free will. But I kind of wonder how much his debate with Pelagius really impacted the oh. focus of his writings at that period. Oh, so much, yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually, I just yesterday submitted the uh, uh, the manuscript to my publisher uh, for this book, um, uh, Wiffenstock. Uh, they published my book um, that we're discussing here, but now they're publishing a study guide, a student's handbook oh, wow. to mere Molinism. And, uh, and, and, and each, so there's a lot of fill in the blanks here. And there's a lot of questions. Timothy Fox and I co-authored it. Uh, Fox went through and, and uh, kind of fleshed out a whole bunch of good questions that Everybody should be able to answer from each chapter. But then in most of the chapters, I give at least one going deeper section where clarify some things or advance the argument or share some new insights that I've had since publishing the book. And so uh, stay tuned for that. I think it's really going to be helpful, especially I'm really excited about these going deeper sections. But in this going deeper section, you know, I talk about um, uh, even when we get to Pelagius, how his heresy you know they, they, he was called the reluctant heretic because his heart and his de his desires were right his heart was in the right place um, but he made some errors however i think because of the errors he made other theologians were able to capitalize and to correct and to and to build upon that anyway there's sometimes you know just how god uses evil for good god can use really good people to make some theological mistakes that we can then and i'm actually thankful for this i think for example that calvin and luther and jonathan edwards made some horrible mistakes yeah i'm having a blast trying to correct a few of these things <laughs> <laughs> so i'm actually thankful for that um but uh but anyway i i would i guess i see um augustine i i do think that a person could make the case that um, he provided the foundation for Calvinism, but that's not to say he became an exhaustive divine determinist. I don't right. even think Calvin was that, and I explained I why I in my book. Uh, I think really the only person that we can say who was was Jonathan Edwards. So most people who are academic Calvinists today um, or any kind of Calvinist that sa says that God causally determines everything or what I call ed, exhaustive divine determinism, Really, Jonathan Edwards is the culprit behind that. It wasn't Calvin. Calvin um, gives us several instances of where he affirms what seems to be what I call limited libertarian freedom. Now, even if we said that Augustine held that view, uh, that, that salvation. So, so Calvin obviously would be a determinist when it comes to salvation issues. But that's not to say that he doesn't think that you can 
freely choose what color shirt you're going to wear. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, th- those are things of the of, of the world, earthly matters, uh, things like that. I think is uh, how he and Luther would um, refer to them. Uh, issues above, issues below, or earthly matters between heavenly matters, things like that. The the issues above and the heavenly matters; those would be causally determined by God. But these folks would say, and I'm talking about Calvin and Luther, and even pretty sure Augustine would say, now the things, at least the things below, you're you're free. Um, now, uh, in a libertarian sense, now Aquinas, in my opinion, um, implicitly provided really what, I, what I'm kind of known for uh, the free thinking argument uh, before I did. It seems to me, oh. or, or anyone else for that matter. <laughs> uh, so Aquinas. I, I mean, I, I think I wrote one extra page about Aquinas than I did Molina um, in, in my book. So I really spilled a lot of ink on uh, the historical survey of Aquinas, and I found him fascinating. I'm definitely not a Thomist, as a, a, you know most people um, use the word Thomist today, but um, he definitely, I, I, I definitely would use him to make a case for libertarian freedom from a theological perspective. Let me ask you this question, and then we'll then we'll turn it over to Curtis to see if he has any follow up. You, you know, I, I've read I've read Aquinas quite. Well, I'm not going to say extensively as 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 some people have, but I've I've read him quite a bit, and um, it's it's he is open to free free will. Uh, so obviously, Molina came. After Aquinas, so do you think Aquinas would have accepted the doctrine of mental knowledge if it were presented in his time period? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'll say it this way: if you were if you were alive today, yes, I do think he would be a Molinist. <laughs> he'd, he'd accept mental knowledge. Um, so, I do yeah, too. Uh, I, I really do. Yeah, if, uh, I don't think time travel is metaphysically possible, but if. Uh, <laughs> No matter if it's A theory or B theory, I'll just throw that out there. I don't think it's metaphysically possible. But um, uh, if we could, if I'm wrong about that, and we could go back in time and have Molina and Aquinas, oh man, I, I think about that all the time. What, what would that be like? And, and obviously, I think they're all together in heaven right now. That's what I was getting um, ready to say. One day we'll be we'll be able to have that conversation. Yeah, and we're gonna yeah we're gonna join that conversation <laughs> one of these days. And I do think everybody's gonna be a Molinist at that point. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, here's what I'll say about uh, Aquinas. He seems to affirm libertarian freedom, uh, at least when it comes to human rationality and, and things like that. So if Aquinas uh, affirms libertarian freedom, uh, libertarian free thinking, and if Aquinas would affirm that logically prior to the creation of the universe that God was omniscient, then he'd have to affirm middle knowledge as well. That's a good point. Um, and so, uh, and, and in fact, I've talked to one Thomas scholar, uh, SES, who I won't name names right now, but uh, we had a conversation um, face-to-face. It was actually in North Carolina at a Frank Turek event. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and... Uh, and I said, well, look, was, I said, do you believe that there was a state of affairs in which God exists, sands the universe, and sands everything else, that it's just God and a static state of aseity? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, in that state, is God omnipotent? Does he have options at his disposal? Can he choose to create or not create? And he said, yeah, I would hold that. 
And I said, okay, in that state of aseity, uh, static state of aseity, logically prior to creation, is God also omniscient? Does he know everything that would happen based on everything that he could create? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, then God's got little knowledge. <laughs> and and he was like, oh, well, I, I guess that kind of makes sense, you know? <laughs> and, and Frank Eric, who was there uh, from SES as well, graduated from there, he was like, yeah, I'm because I would I would affirm middle knowledge and Molinism as well. So there's a lot of folks who are saying that uh, that middle knowledge and Molinism aren't compatible with Thomism, but I think that's a, a, a maybe an extreme view yeah, of I, Thomism. Um, but anyway, that, I'm just uh, speculating now. Um, there's a big debate out there. So I'm kind of of the persuasion, and and I'll be fully honest. I may be wrong on this, but it, it seems to me that the two can mesh very well uh, in in most most yeah. aspects. But yeah, I know other scholars who claim to be Thomists and Molinists, and they don't have a problem with it. So, but there's a few folks out there who do. So I think they're crazy. <laughs> I, I mean that in all respect. <laughs> in the most Christian manner. <laughs> Yeah, they probably think I'm crazy, and I might be. So there you go. I, I I'm yeah. sure I am. I write a little bit. Well, I know I you am. Got to be so. a little bit, a little bit crazy to <laughs> be a theologian. I, I don't know. <laughs> Curtis, you have any follow up yeah. questions, brother? No, other than how big is your flag that you put in the sand in this one? Because this sounds like you've kind of made a pretty big decision. <laughs> well, what what, what do you, when you say on this one, what do you mean? Well, on the on the uh, how the how the historical, because um, there's some people that that actually claim that uh, some of these actually lean more Calvinistic thinking or or on a Calvinist side of it, where yours is you, you're saying that some of these lean more into uh, the Molinist uh, perspective. Well, what I'm doing, uh, what I'm doing here is. So the historical survey was not focused on middle knowledge. It was focused on libertarian freedom and, and these views of freedom among these historians or the, uh, theologians of the past. So what I'm doing here is all I need for mere Molinism is a little bit of libertarian mm-hmm. freedom. So even like uh, uh, Shedd, um, he, you know, reformed writer, uh, and and even Calvin, Calvin did the same thing. Both these guys affirmed that Adam had free will in the libertarian sense; that he was not causally determined by God mm-hmm. to fall. Okay, great. Even if, or, look, all I need is that. If one, all I need is somebody to give me one instance. Even if everything since then has been causally determined by God or something else, if Adam had libertarian freedom to sin, to fall into temptation, or to take the way of escape that Paul tells everybody right. else that we've got. Right. But even if Adam was the only one to have that and was not causally determined by God to fall into sin. And, okay, you give me that, and then I say, okay, did God know that Adam was going to freely fall into temptation before God said, let there be, and created the universe? If they say yes, I say congratulations. You're a Molinist. Mm. Right? You're at least a mere <laughs> Molinist. And that's that's why I, I talk yeah. about mere Molinism. Mere, right? mere Molinism. Human freedom, yeah. divine knowledge, and mere Molinism. I'm I, all I need is a, just a little bit of libertarian freedom somewhere. Right. 
And so later on in my book, I have what I call the, the I think I call it the Calvinist quiz. And I, I show these questions that I ask to, uh, that I typically ask to Calvinists. And, uh, and, and, and I quote, I kind of tell the story that I had to a well-known, or that I had with a well-known Calvinist theologian, very well-known, uh, great guy, by the way. And at the end of our conversation, he wound up affirming that Adam had libertarian freedom. He even wound up affirming that we have libertarian freedom and things not related to salvation. Okay. But all I needed is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and so I said at the end of our conversation, I said, well, congratulations, you're a Molinist. And he goes, well, how'd you reach that con- conclusion? And, and I connected the dots for him. <laughs> I explained in my book. But, but yeah, all I need is just a little bit. And I can get good. Get you there. Hey, let me add here because because my my minor in in the PhD studies I have has been in history, so I've got over twenty four or over graduate studies in church history, and and one of the things I've noticed is that that not a lot of people do anymore is go back and read the primary sources. A lot of times people will talk about what Calvin said without actually engaging Calvin, or they'll, they'll engage yeah. Augustine without engage, actually engaging the works of Augustine. And I think having read, now I haven't read all the Institutes, I have read Calvin's work, I mean, uh, excuse me, Augustine's work, uh, about 75% of City of God and, and uh, the Confessions. I think having read that material, I think you're spot on, Tim. I think that mm-hmm. there's far more an openness to libertarian free will than what um, some some individuals give credence to. A lot of times people will, will quote something someone else says without actually doing the, the work, and, and I applaud you for the work you've done in your book. Um, I think there are far more theologians in, the, in history that are more open to libertarian free will than what many would give credence oh, yeah. to. Amen to that. Amen. And in fact, uh, one of the things I talk about in my book is so many people like to tell you what Arminius believed exactly without ever quoting Arminius. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. It's really, it's really sad. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like it was important for me to do a lot mm-hmm. of, this, you know, from my perspective, boring work <laughs> um, <laughs> because uh, people, you know, they they throw out these names all the time and really don't right. know what they talked about. Exactly. Well, it's like even Oregon of Alexandria. You know, uh, you know, granted, mind you, some of the things he discusses they're they're a little off, but you know, he's got some great yeah. stuff in there. I mean, yeah, it you does. know, I mean, so I don't know that uh, you know some people cast him off as a heretic. I mean, obviously, there are some things that are a little wonky, but uh, I don't. You know, I I think there's more things that's pretty orthodox than they are, you know, yeah. unorthodox in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah. you know. That's another podcast for another time. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Who were some of the more prominent Reformational thinkers, and and how do they relate to Molinism? Maybe you know some of the big names out there. Yeah, well, the big names are, I mean, you know, Erasmus. A lot of yeah. people aren't that familiar with Erasmus, but he was kind of a rock star of the Reformation. Now, he was definitely a libertarian freedom fighter. Right, so so right off the bat, we can see that you can be a reformer uh, and also uh, affirm libertarian freedom. You also had Arminius, right? Arminius himself, right? The the you know where Arminianism came from. He was a reformer. He died in good standing with the reformers. Uh, but one of my favorites, um, I mean, obviously, when we talk about the Reformation, you have to talk about Luther and Calvin. Um, 
But one of my favorites in this study that blew my mind was somebody that I didn't know of before I started this uh, project, and that's Philip Melanchthon. Oh, absolutely. And the way I understand. Do you know? Do you know about him? Yeah. I, mean, I was talking to a. I was talking to a Lutheran pastor a couple weeks ago, and I was telling him about Philip Melanchthon and how he was the systematic theologian of the Reformation and kind of Luther's right hand man. And he's like, "How have I never heard of Philip Melanchthon before?" And I said, "I don't know." I've but often go check him out. I've often heard the two being uh, ascribed as Luther being the voice and Melanchthon being the mind behind Lutheranism. Uh, well, I think that would be great, and if that's the case, then. Sometimes the voice might have misunderstood a few things, uh, <laughs> or, or, or maybe could have uh, vocalized it better. Um, but I think you see a, uh, I mean, Melanchthon is, I, I mean, I think Luther gives us reason to think that uh, we could affirm, that, that a good Lutheran could affirm limited libertarian freedom apart from salvation matters. But Melanchthon makes it clear. Um, now, I would say bringing up the Reformation, uh, Kirk McGregor would argue that we also need to include Luis de Molina, yeah. um, at least in a sense in that. But now, he argues that Molina was actually a reformer who never left the Catholic Church, unlike Luther. But if you, if you think that mm. I mean, Luther started the Reformation, really, before he officially left the church, he was trying to reform it from within mm. and mm. eventually threw his hands in the air and said, you know, uh, enough of this, and he left. Well, Molina uh, never, uh, you know, never uh, gave up on the church, and I think he was largely successful. I think he he did a good job of bringing reform to the Catholic Church, and uh, and I think he did it. Um, uh, I mean, I think the church, the Catholic Church, now is in better shape than it was uh, back then. But anyway, I mean, I'm not a Catholic. I'm just saying what I what I see. Um, but anyway, let's. Uh, with that said, I think we should pay close attention to the theologian that I was just talking about, uh, Philip Melanchthon. Mm. One quote from Melanchthon uh, really stood out to me. Um, it's in my book. And now, again, as as I said, I, I thought Luther and Calvin were clear enough that there's at least limited libertarian freedom in matters below things not related to salvation, but. Melanchthon, the great systematic theologian of the Reformation, seemed to make it clear that humans possess the freedom, opportunity, and categorical ability to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, you're right, this limited libertarian freedom and mundane matters not related to uh, salvation, or you know, the big fancy theological word is soteriology. Mm -hmm. Now, issues rela <coughs> issues related to salvation. So, let me read to you a quote from Melanchthon here. Um, I think kind of seals the deal that we've got libertarian free will. He says, you yourself have experienced that it is in your power to greet or not to greet him, to put, to put on this coat or not put it on, to eat or not to do so. Right now, what does that sound like? That to <laughs> me sounds as clear as you can get that you have the opportunity to do one thing or the other. Right mm -hmm. now, are these things related? To, is this going to get you saved? By no means, right? But all I need, look, he, Melanchthon here is talking yeah. about the ability to greet or not to greet a person, to put a coat on or not to put it on, to eat something or not to eat it. All right, 
That's libertarian freedom, an ability to do otherwise. You can eat or not eat, right? If you if you didn't eat, you could have eaten it. Right? Right. That's the ability to do otherwise. <laughs> that's that's a libertarian freedom in a strong sense. So um, now, if God knew, even even though this isn't related to salvation, if God knew if you would eat or not eat it, or greet or not greet, <laughs> or put on the coat or not put it on. If God knew that before he created, then congratulations, Molinism is true, at least mere Molinism. Um, so anyway, there's there's good reason to believe that the original reformers, although they probably, you know, the, at least how it's thought of now, I mean, they don't take into account Arminius and uh, uh, Erasmus and those guys. <clears throat> but although they rejected the idea of libertarian freedom regarding salvation issues, uh, they um, they would have probably rejected, and they seem to reject, exhaustive divine determinism, what I call ED, E-D-D. Um, and, and this ED view is the view that many Calvinists and Reformed theologians affirm today. But they get that from uh, Edwards, who was post-Reformation. And I talk about that in my book. But uh, yeah, in the, uh, in the new study guide um, that I've got coming out, um, I... I discuss this in more depth and detail as well. Tim, since we're, since we're running down on time, um, let, let's combine the seventh and eighth question together and just say, what is the very best, just limit it down to the very best, what is the very best philosophical argument for libertarian free will, and what is the very best theological argument for libertarian free will? <clears throat> okay. Um, I've got several that I that I like to keep in my back pocket. But definitely my favorite philosophical argument for libertarian freedom is what I call the free-thinking argument. And since publishing uh, my book, I've been offering a, slot, a slightly uh, modified and newly worded version of the syllogism known as the free-thinking argument against naturalism. So I don't just argue for uh, libertarian freedom here. I try to even get more here and argue against naturalism and even argue that the biblical view of God is the best explanation of this libertarian yeah. freedom that we possess. Uh, I could keep it simple and just give three uh, steps, two premises, and I think I'll do that now. In my in my book and in my soon-to-be-published uh, study companion to the book, I'll, I'll give a long, a longer syllogism, and it's newly worded in the study guide. Um, it's eight steps total, but just let me give. I'll, I'll shorten it for the sake of time. This is normally. Uh, steps three, four, and five of the eight-step syllogism. And, and in the eight-step syllogism, I, get, I give you three deductive conclusions and one, uh, uh, one abductive conclusion. But here's a short version. Premise one, if all things about humanity, including all thoughts and beliefs, are causally determined by the forces and events of nature, then it's impossible for humans to rationally infer better or best explanations over false beliefs and rationally affirm knowledge claims. Four, or I'm sorry, premise two, it is possible for humans to infer better and best explanations over false beliefs and rationally affirm knowledge claims. And in fact, it's self-defeating to offer knowledge claims against that premise. Conclusion, therefore, not all things about humanity are causally determined by the forces and events of nature. I like that. So um, that first premise basically expresses the fact that if all things are causally determined 
then that includes all thoughts, beliefs, evaluations, and judgments. And if all of a person's thoughts, beliefs, evaluations, and judgments are always forced upon her, and she, she had no opportunity to be more careful and choose better thoughts, beliefs, evaluations, or judgments, then she's simply left assuming that her determined thoughts, beliefs, evaluations, and judgments are good and that her beliefs are mm -hmm. true. But there, that's an assumption. And so therefore, one can never rationally affirm that her beliefs really are the inference to the best explanation. This can only be assumed, and this assumption uh, would likewise be causally determined and forced upon her. So uh, as Dr. Craig has said, a sense of vertigo is warranted. <laughs> uh, this, assumption, <laughs> this assumption that the non-rational laws and events of nature causally determine all human thoughts, evaluations, and, evaluations and judgments is the paramount concern for the atheistic naturalist who affirms the exhaustive determinism of humanity. And in fact, the, this, this provides an undercutting defeater to the determinist belief in determinism. So if determinism is true, then atheists, or, or really anyone else for that matter, cannot possess justification for their belief in atheism or naturalism. And if justification is required for knowledge, which most ep epistemologists affirm, then the atheist or the naturalist cannot possess knowledge based upon justification either. So it follows that if, if the naturalistic determinist knows that naturalism is true, then naturalism is false. Yeah. So it makes much more sense, I think, to conclude that naturalism is false and that God and things like God, uh, such as souls, exist. Now, now here's the bottom line. If you believe that you are a rational free thinker who is ultimately, or no, I'll say it again. Bottom line, if you believe that you are a rational free thinker who is not causally uh, determined or mind-controlled by something else, then you should reject uh, atheistic naturalism and affirm that both God and soul exist. And I think, you know, as I said earlier, that Christian theism is the best explanation of the data. I explained that in my book, and I've just uh, gone into more depth and detail on that and are on my website and on my YouTube channel and things like that. But, um, man, I've got other arguments I could give you, but let me give you a theological argument really quick. And I've already given you one uh, based on 1 Corinthians 10. Mm, absolutely. Uh, that's a, right? That's a great biblical theological case for libertarian freedom. But I also like to show that really the damning implications of rejecting libertarian freedom when it comes to thinking, judging, and evaluating when viewed through the lens of perfect being theology. So really, I kind of argued against uh, naturalistic determinism with the argument I just gave you. But now let's shift our focus just a little bit. I'm going to argue against theological determinism because the theological determinist or the ed guy, the exhaustive divine determinist, has the exact same problems but for different reasons and even with worse implications. So not only does the exhaustive divine determinist advocate have a low view of God, right? God loses his status as a maximally great being and is relegated to the low view of something akin to Loki, the god of mischief from the, <laughs> for the Avengers, right? He's a, he becomes a deity of deception. Moreover, if this is the case and Loki causally determines all of our, you know, all human thoughts, evaluations, and judgments, then we have defeaters to all of our thoughts evaluations, judgments, and the beliefs that follow from them. So we can, or we possess undercutting defeaters to, to all of our thoughts and beliefs, if that's the case. So here's a syllogism to make my point. Premise one, exhaustive divine determinism, Ed, it, or, if, or if Ed is true, 
a deity, let's call him Loki, always causally determines every human thought, evaluation, and judgment. Two, if Loki is untrustworthy and always causally determines every human thought, evaluation, and judgment, then human thought, evaluation, and judgment is untrustworthy. Three, Loki is untrustworthy. Four, therefore, if Ed is true, then human thought, evaluation, and judgment is untrustworthy. So, let me unpack this. Most people know that Loki is untrustworthy if they've watched the Avengers or oh, yeah. uh, the Loki show on Disney Plus or whatever, right? So I don't need to defend that. But any other deity, right? You pl- replace Loki with any other deity. <laughs> uh, any other deity would also be untrustworthy when one combines Ed with one with one's own infallibility. So unless one is going to claim that they are an infallibility, fallible theologian and say that ed is true now god is untrustworthy because Mm. that means that god causally determines every person including the person making this the claim that ed is true or that calvinism is true god causally determines each and every person to happily affirm a false belief a false theological at least false theological beliefs if not more Mm. so that's the case the ed calvinist view of god is is just as untrustworthy as Loki. Um, now, in fact, one of the world's best-known Ed Calvinist philosophers, in response to my challenge, admitted that on his view, it is the case that God causally determines all affirmations of false beliefs, including every time a Calvinist is wrong about something. <laughs> so if that's the case, then how does he know that this deity of deception, this God of mischief, is not causally determining him to happily affirm a false belief on this topic. Again, <laughs> as Dr. Craig said, here comes that sense of vertigo. And, and, and this sense of vertigo provides an undercutting defeater to this claim of knowledge that the Calvinist has given me. Thus, it's a claim of knowledge that we have reason to doubt. Now, it's here, 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 here you go. <laughs> it's like wondering if CNN is trustworthy. Right? If they really are the most trusted name in news, as James Earl Jones says. So you're wondering if you can trust CNN or not. So you go to the fact checkers to find out. And the fact checkers tell you, oh, yeah, CNN is totally trustworthy. You should get your news from CNN and definitely avoid Fox News or anyone else. But then, but then you discover that the fact checkers are actually employed by CNN. <laughs> that makes a difference. Now you have... Yeah. Now you have an undercutting defeater to the claims from both James Earl Jones and the fact checkers. Right? They might be right. Maybe they're telling you the truth, but you have reason to doubt. So if that's the case, then both the, the CNN claims and the Ed claim are not justified. And these claims of knowledge are nothing but assertions assumed to be true. But assumptions are not rational affirmations. Right. So it's a completely different thing. And now that's going to get us into epistemic problems. And Brian, you're going to be taking a, an epistemology class pretty soon. So Absolutely. You can, you can tell me what you think about it then. But Good old bio anyway, there's, yeah, that's right. So there's, uh, there's your philosophical argument and a theological argument that gets philosophical. Let me go ahead and ask this last question, and I'll turn it over to Curtis to see if he has any follow-up questions. Uh, what apologetic value do you find Molinism? That, do you find that Molinism holds for uh, the modern Christian? 
are tremendous value, just tremendous. In fact, uh, I don't think you can be a good apologist if you're not a Molinist. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, so first, I, I find it mind-blowing that one of the key ingredients of mere Molinism, right? Remember, you, got, you need middle knowledge and libertarian freedom. And I discuss this in the last chapter of my book. Um, at least one of those two ingredients, if not both, were related to almost all of the cumulative case of arguments typically advanced for the existence of God by well-known apologists like William Lane Craig and others. Almost all of them either assumed or were strengthened by middle knowledge or libertarian freedom, human libertarian freedom. Um, more importantly, however, I'll, I'll say this, uh, Molinism has access to defeat the problem of evil and even the problem of divine hiddenness. Mm. Um, uh, you know, like I, I think of uh, John Schellenberg's argument uh, for uh, or argument from divine hiddenness. He's arguing against the existence of God uh, because of divine hiddenness, and it's really a good argument. It's a clever argument. It's good in a sense. I'll tell you why here, uh, but but I'll just tell, tell you this: that Molinism can defeat these arguments from evil and arguments from divine hiddenness in ways that Calvinism and open theism don't. In fact, I think Calvinism and open theism are actually shown to be false by certain arguments advanced by these atheists. So these arguments, like I said, I, I think they're good in a sense. They fail in another sense. They, they, they fail to show that God doesn't exist or that Christianity is false because they fail um, to take down Molinism. Molinism is left unscathed by their attacks. But I'll tell you what, uh, I, the, the arguments from divine hiddenness, I'm thinking of John Schellenberg and another philosopher from Arizona named Aaron Rizzieri, who I've become friends with. Um, these guys are offering uh, arguments against God's existence um, from divine hiddenness and they don't take down Molinism. I, I've got a paper coming out, uh, a, a, an academic journal uh, article uh, coming out soon, coming out in 2022. But I'm actually reading a paper that's uh, going to be uh, a version of this paper um, at the ETS and EPS in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Oh, cool. Um, this this November. Are you going to be there? I, I wish I could with uh, everything going on right now. I'm, I'm afraid I'm kind of locked in for time. Uh, <laughs> bummer. Well... Um, if you change your mind, you should come on down. Um, I would love to come. If it's up to but, me, I'd be there. Yeah, but, 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 yeah so in this paper, um, I'm, I'm going to be describing how these arguments from evil and arguments from divine hiddenness, they're, they're successful in a sense. They show what views of God's sovereignty are false. Yeah. And I, I tell you, Calvinism and open theism both succumb to these arguments, but Molinism doesn't. Molinism is, is left standing unscathed. And so what do we get from this? We, I mean, it's in a sense, I'm telling my, I'm telling these guys, man, this is a good argument yeah. in a sense. It also fails in another sense because God exists and Christianity is still true. But thank you for helping me show that Calvinism and open theism are false. So <laughs> anyway, um, I encourage people to, to read the last chapter of my book. And I, mm -hmm. I discuss this a lot more on YouTube and stuff like that too. But yeah, stay tuned. In fact, in the study guide that um, will be coming out soon, um, I'm, I'm talking about how Molinism defeats the problems of evil and divine hiddenness as well. So 
Yeah. Now, I talk about how Molinism defeats the problems of evil in my book. I gave a footnote given a hint, really, about, uh, or at least one way how we can um, interact with the problem of divine hiddenness, but I don't really go into it. But this new paper really fleshes out really kind of a new direction that's still based on Molinism. So I'm really excited about it. Curtis, any follow-up questions? Well, I just I just wanted to kind of maybe um, kind of actually ask a clear up a clarification question. I've heard uh, Dr. Flowers say that that he's a provisionist. What's the difference between a provisionist and a uh, Molinist? Uh, well, I guess it would depend if the provisionist affirmed middle knowledge or not. Mm -hmm. So if the provisionist, because the provisionalist, as far as I understand it, affirms libertarian freedom. Mm -hmm. And so all you need then is middle knowledge. So if the if the provisionalist affirms middle knowledge, then I say, congratulations, you're a Molinist. If you don't, <laughs> then I think that's a big mistake, uh, but you're not a Molinist. Would <laughs> so that be the, more along the lines of classic Arminianism, you're saying? Yeah, and I, and I think classic Arminianism is... Uh, often conflated with the simple foreknowledge view um, in my book in my study guide that I've got coming out I talk about uh, really in more depth in my study guide in one of those go going deeper sections to talk about how many people thought that Arminius was actually a Molinist within the Reformation yeah. which is just mind-blowing when you think about that um, and there's debate there among Molinists among Molinist scholars but and others but um have, have you heard the have you heard i'm sorry one real quick question have you heard the argument that arminius could have uh, had a copy of the concordia on his bookshelf oh didn't just could have it's been confirmed confirmed okay and he quoted yeah he quoted as far as i understand he quoted molina without using without citing molina <laughs> um, now he couldn't he couldn't right some people say well that's plagiarism well you got to you got to stand in his shoes. Yeah, put yourself in the times. Yeah, yeah, put himself in the times and where he was. He could he couldn't be citing a, a Jesuit monk within the Reformation if he wanted to stay in the Reformation. <laughs> That's so a good point. A little bit, right? <laughs> he look. He uh, according to Tom McCall, uh, McCall once told me that um, that Arminius was once accused of being too Catholic, uh, <laughs> and so. You know, he worked hard to get into good standing with his fellow reformers. And then uh, he kind of, I think he even uses the words middle knowledge. Um, and he, he, he quotes Molina without citing Molina. And, but he's doing, I mean, he died in good standing with the reformers. So he could not be throwing around uh, stuff from the Jesuits. Um, <laughs> so you just have to understand history yeah. <laughs> a little bit here. I, I don't claim to be a, an awesome historian but man when you start looking at the you know what's going on here yeah. uh, it's just kind of mind-blowing you can actually put yourselves in their shoes and and man i that's one thing i enjoy doing the studies is really trying to put myself in in that setting back then and just kind of understand what arminius was feeling there and even what molina was was feeling anyway that's that's another topic um with that said Oftentimes, Arminianism is conflated with the simple foreknowledge view. And if you just get simple foreknowledge, that, mean, that just means that God knows the future and nothing else. I think that's a horrible view. But Arminianism, 
is definitely compatible with Molinism. Many have made the case that Arminius was actually a Molinist. Uh, you know, if that's true or not, it's possible. And so, uh, I, you know, I think of a, a, a friend of mine who contributes uh, for Free Thinking Ministries, and he's really the most voracious reader I've ever met, and that includes any PhD scholar. His name is David Pullman. Do you know who he is? You know, I've he's, heard the name. I don't. I don't know yeah. him that well. Oh, he is an up and comer, um, and uh, I think he's going to be a, a rock star theologian or philosopher, or whatever he decides to do. He's a, a student at, at Trinity College of the Bible right now, um, but he reads more than anybody. But anyway, he's an avid Arminian and affirms mere Molinism. So uh, now, now I show in my book. I also know. Calvinists who are also mere Molinists. I show in my book how you can be a five-point Calvinist and also affirm mere Molinism. You can also be an Arminian and still affirm mere Molinism. Uh, interestingly, you cannot be an open theist and still be a mere Molinist. But mm -hmm. you can be a Calvinist and an Arminian and both, and also be a mere Molinist. So, Curtis, any additional questions? Yeah. No, the only thing, Tim, is... To, uh, before we before we close out here, I would like you to um, tell us, you know, tell the tell the listeners where uh, where they can maybe get a little more information. You know, your website, uh, maybe even when your study guide and and what's going to be entailing with that study guide. How we can get a hold of that stuff, um, and and could it be applied to, um, you know, a small group or such? Mm -hmm. Oh man, yes. Uh, so yeah, that's why I wrote that book uh, co-authored it with Timothy Fox is because we had a desire um, for, for, for small groups to get together and study that book together. Um, and it really kind of, we, we walk the reader through um, to, to see what questions they really need to have a handle on before going to the next chapter. And I really do get excited. I mean, I, just in this conversation today, I've referenced several of the going deeper sections uh, that you can expect to find in there. So it's not just a study guide with fill in the blanks. It's also going to be advancing the cause just a little bit here and there um, with some new material. So I'm really excited about that. I don't know for sure. I, I just uh, emailed the publisher today and said I'd sure like to see this available before Christmas so people can get it for Christmas presents. Um, so I'm, I, I would be surprised if it's not out. Um, before then. So yeah, uh, follow me on, uh, on free thinking on the free thinking ministries, YouTube channel, please subscribe. You can support our ministry for free just by hitting that subscribe button mm -hmm. and, uh, and follow what we're doing there. I'll be keeping you posted on when that book is coming out. You can go to Amazon and get my book, human freedom, divine knowledge, and mere Molinism. Um, and uh, you can get it on your Kindle for just $9.99. Uh, a hardcover is available, and also a paperback version is available. Those are more expensive, but the Kindle is $9.99. Um, and, yeah, so uh, YouTube channel. Then my website is uh, freethinkingministries.com. And I just started a new Facebook group uh, just like, I don't know, three or four weeks ago now. And it's uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, it's just called Mere Molinism, M-E-R-E, -E, Molinism. And you don't have to be a Molinist to join. I say this is not a place to argue against Molinism. But even if you're not a Molinist, feel free to come and 
and check it out. Ask a few questions. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's really cool because we've got a lot of Molinists there. Um, it's pretty smart guys that have been studying Molinism for quite a while. Then uh, we also have uh, some non-Molinists and some open theists and Calvinists there who, who are checking it out. Maybe they're not persuaded by it, but, you know, we're having a few, a few good conversations. Anyway, if you're out there, I invite you to join Mere Molinism, the Facebook group. Absolutely. And before we turn it over to Curtis, uh, be sure to go check out Free Thinking Ministries. And today our guest has been Dr. Timothy Stratton. The book is Human Freedom, Divine Foreknowledge, and Mere Molinism, A Biblical, Historical, Theological, and Philosophical Analysis. Tim, thank you for being on with us. You've got an open invite anytime, my friend. And, uh, man, this has yeah, been buddy. a lot of fun. So we're going to turn well, it off. if it's an open invite, I'm just going to start hanging out on every show. Hey, come yeah. on, man. Come on. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> That'd be good. Yeah. That'd be good. No, I'd be honored, and I would. I really look forward to coming back. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, you guys are yep. doing some awesome work, so keep it up. Awesome. Thank yeah. you, sir. It's been good. Well, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us when we've been that time. Our prayers that this podcast will stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Those are on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at barnesandnoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in.